I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I'm Guy Barter and welcome to Gardening with the RHS. One thing I really love about gardening is the huge array of topics that you can get positively geeky over. Recently, I've been really interested in peonies, so I bought a collection of rather expensive plants and they're still going alright, but now, much more economically, I've become obsessed by cover crops for my allotment and spend unfeasible amounts of time growing oats and rye grass to try and improve the soil, save money, improve the environment and grow better veg. Results are promising, shall we say. Anyway, back to this podcast. Today, we're going to help you grow your green knowledge with our gardening advisors and we'll explore some of the fascinating interactions between plants and animals. We'll also be hearing the incredible story of how one woman overcame class, race and gender boundaries to become a pioneering botanist in the next part of our Unsung Heroes of Horticulture series. I'm always learning something new from my colleagues here at the RHS. We have experts in just about every single gardening topic you can think of. If I have any tricky gardening questions, I just have a chat with our advisory team. In between answering my queries, they've been hard at work answering all of yours. Let's hear what they've been asked recently. Hi, I'm Lee Hunt and today I've got with me Becky Meady and Jenny Bowden. Hello. Hello. And this question comes from Celia Ashley from Bromley Cross. I have a couple of roses that have not done well in their current location. I feel like I've made a mistake planting them in the north-facing garden. To the back, I have a south-facing garden and I would like to relocate those roses. When is the best time to do that? Now. Now, you could do it now. They're all dormant, leaves have fallen off, no time at the present, So and then ready for them getting growing next spring. It does depend how long they've been in for as to how well they'll relate to actually being moved. Roses are one of those plants that really don't like being moved very much. Roses have got very deep roots and they're quite woody with few fibrous roots. So as long as you're aware of that, then you can dig quite deeply so that you don't break that woody taproot. But as Becky says, it is the perfect time to have a go at it. And hopefully if you water well next season, they should come back with a flourish. Yeah, that's the crucial thing, isn't it, for next season, for watering and establishing. Can we grow roses in north-facing positions? 
Is that a good thing to do? Ideally, you need a good half a day of sunshine, but there are a few roses that you can grow in shadier positions. Some of the David Austin ones will thrive in about four or five hours of sunshine a day. The Ragosa roses in general are okay with four or five hours of good sunshine. Emily Bronte is a pale pink David Austin type rose. Country Parson, Kew Gardens, a Shropshire lad. This question comes from Louise Houghton from Mid Wales. I'm attempting to establish a herb garden in some planters next year. They are three feet off the ground and approximately four by one and a half feet. I'm just looking for a few hints and tips on their hardiness, companionable planting, plus perennial annual selections and anything I need to watch out for. Thanks. So we've got this container. Um, What's the best way to prepare it before we actually choose the plants to go in it? Well, before you start, put it in a nice sunny position before you start filling it with compost. Herbs in general love sunshine. Compost-wise, ideally something like a John Innes compost that's kind of loamy, but with perlite, keep it nice and light, or you can use grit, but you want a nice open texture for herbs in the main. And then you can set about choosing some plants. Above all, what do you like cooking? What do you enjoy eating? That would be one of my main ways of choosing. My preference is probably in a container like that, perhaps not to go for big, chunky plants like rosemary. I think they're probably better out in the main flower bed. But things like parsley, chives, chervil, French tarragon, those are the sort of things that you get to put together for French sort of fines herbe, for salads and poultry and things like that. If you like those sorts of herbs and those kind of meals, it really just depends what you like cooking. And now for our next question. Hello, my name is Sue Wyatt and I live in a small village in the Swansea Valley, South Wales. We have a huge passion flower growing up a trellis in a south-facing position in our garden. It's been there for more than five years and is in very good condition with plenty of growth and masses of flower buds. My question is, why don't the flower buds open? I'm very puzzled. So these flower buds, why do they typically not open? Well, they do take their time in opening, so they kind of open up in sequence. So you don't tend to have a whole passion flower covered in flowers they tend to open as their time goes and they kind of you know you get one at ones type things so I'm wondering whether it's just got too much nitrogen feed potentially and then not enough potash and these just a little bit maybe it's just some tomato food just to kind of help the flowering. Because Sue is in Swansea we know that she's in a relatively mild area of the country but passifloras or passion flowers are still pretty much borderline hardy in much of the UK so we would sort of say around the coast towns and cities are a good place to try this if people want to have a go what are the hardier passifloras to look out for any of the carolea types which is the sort of classic one that you'll most commonly find in the garden centers there are some quite nice cultivars there's one called constance elliot which is pure white and it's scented as well so Anything that says Passiflora, Carolea, and then the cultivar, and that determines the colour or perhaps the scent, they're all good ones. We have a question from Sean James Cameron from Crystal Palace. 
Over the last few months, I've started to develop an interest in grasses. And at the moment, I'm growing low grass. But I'm looking for suggestions on maybe a grass that's around about six foot tall. Anything but pampas grass. So, obviously, pampas grass, which is, I think is making a real comeback, is out here. But obviously, that's quite a big wide plant as well what else could they grow that reaches the height but perhaps doesn't dominate the garden so yesterday when on my way to get the post from wisley i went through the grass borders down in the howard's field and had a look at what they've got growing there that look really good at the moment one of them is the miscanthus professor richard hansen so that's got a really quite nice tussly head and that's quite a nice red as it opens and then it fades it tends to have quite a good old clearance of a stem before the actual flower so they stand quite proud and they were standing up really quite well at the moment and the other one that I like the look of down there is not quite as six footer but that's the panicum dagatum north wind and that made nice kind of like a hummock and they've got a very nice spindly kind of flower it's very more airy is the panicum flower for slightly earlier flowers in quite a, a strong purple, Calamagrostis is a good one. Calamagrostis Carl Furster. That flowers in sort of June, July time. A lot of the grasses flower later in the season. Also, you could have foliage which has got silver veins in it, so you've got that extra interest in the garden as well. For example, Miscanthus malapartus. And that gets to sort of between six and seven feet in the panicum as well. Although I was interested to hear what Becky was saying about the panicum. I've always been inspired to grow them because of the grasses that we can see displayed at Wisley. So I bought myself some. If you want to submit a question for our advisors... Just record yourself asking one on your phone or tablet and email it to podcast at rhs.org.uk. Now it's time for the next part of our Unsung Heroes of Horticulture series. Janaki Amal was the first female scientist at RHS Garden Wisley and she revolutionised the way sugarcane is grown in India. Mandeep Mafaru is a herbarium curator at Wisley who wrote a blog about her life and has spoken to some of Dr Amal's descendants. She tells us Janaki's extraordinary story. What basically fascinated me towards Janaki was it was my, my very first year at Wisley. My main role at that time was to go into the cupboards and take the types and the standard specimens out. These are very, very crucial specimens for any herbarium because they serve as the reference point to name a new cultivar. And one day when I was just open this particular rhododendron, I just saw the name, Janaki Yamal. Personally, being brought up back in India, I could just find the resemblance that this is somebody who, who's got the South Asian inheritance. So I googled her and at that time the only detail I could get was she was the first kind of female botanist who worked at Wisley. And I thought, okay Janaki, so you were the first female scientist and I am actually the second woman from the Indian inheritance working at Wisley in 2011. 
myself coming from a background where my grandfather and my grandparents been really strict about everything and you know the way you're not allowed to go out on your own you're supposed to behave a certain way or to dress up in a certain way and i thought that what must she must have gone through having the race and the caste discrimination and then on her own in this big world i just kept putting myself into her shoes that how she must have felt at that time she started her bachelor's in her 1920s so she basically was all her other sisters were getting married she was more lean towards getting more education and she actually chose education over getting settled in life and being married this was not common first of all just getting a bachelor's getting a master's because she belonged to a lower caste a family it wasn't a norm and she broke that norm basically so basically after finishing her doctorate that actually made her the first indian woman to receive a doctorate in the field of botany she came back to india she ended up getting a position of cytologist in the sugarcane breeding institute she's been designated as the lady who made the sugarcane sweeter the sugarcane was imported from abroad and she was sure that she can come up with some high yielding varieties that would help us to grow those varieties back in india and the sugarcane variety that she worked with uh, that actually led to a major cutback because we were able to grow the sugarcane back in india and they didn't need to actually get it imported from from outside although she was doing such significant work she wasn't very well taken by her male peers who were a bit jealous of her work so she wasn't really happy with that and she ended up at the jonens institute uh, here in the uk Over here she had a very interesting collaboration with CD Darlington and JBS Haldane they actually resulted into a very crucial publication called the Chromosome Atlas of Cultivated Plants in 1945 so that was at Jonens and then when she came to Wisley and the major contribution towards horticulture I think because as we know that RHS specializes in cultivars and we take pride in that she was able to actually produce a new cultivar so it's the rhododendron yakushinanum the koichiro wada as the cultivar that she worked on this particular cultivar was chosen in 2016 and it was voted as the number 1 rhododendron basically so that was a major major contribution it was a major outbreak for her she was very active even after her retirement i just actually found out a little bit about how she saved a valley so according to the papers basically in 1970 indian government had planned to flood about like 8.3 kilometers of land basically a evergreen tropical forest and they wanted to convert it into a hydroelectric plant but when john key came to know about this she 
just said that she can't be silenced on this one and she really wants to help the people. So used her status as the valued uh, national scientist and she focused on you know, making a call for preservation of that particular land. People actually listened to her. The project was abandoned and it's called Silent Valley. It's actually a national park in Kerala at the moment. And it's just bursting with endangered orchids and they've got thousands of um, endemic flowering plants. This would have never been possible with her contribution. I'm talking about in 1970, so she must have been like about 80 years old. This lady, she never stopped. Whichever part of the world she was in, she would just concentrate on her work. And that's what she did in her last days. She had like this very meek personality, but... She had that presence. You would know that she's in the room. Quite a huge, huge personality, I would say. She will always be remembered as the female botanist who sweetened the nation, who made sugarcane sweeter. She will always be remembered for, for her work with the Sugarcane Breeding Institute. We will always remember her for her fabulous work through the lovely Magnolia Cobus, which is named after her at Battleston Hill at Wisley. And it's a very lovely, fragrant reminder of her and of her contribution. All those lovely dried press specimens that we have, that every time we take them out from the herbarium cupboards, you'll see her initials. And it just makes you feel her presence as she was here. And then finally, saving a valley in her 80s. I mean, how amazing is that? She does need that recognition to make people aware what she has done and just kind of encourage people that if she can do it, you can do it as well. Mandeep Mafaru. Hearing about Janaki reminded me how steeped in history the laboratory at RHS Wisley is, and of all the remarkable people who did so much important work in the early days. Before I leave you today, let's take a quick trip to Botany Corner with a favourite of the show, Dr Chris Farragut from the University of Oxford. I always love learning from Chris. So far he's spoken about plant defences, poisons, spines, toxins and plant survival. Remember the seeds that lived for thousands of years? And today Chris is here to tell us about the pretty incredible ways some plants and animals work together to support each other. Today we're going to be talking about mutualism between plants and animals. So mutualism is a special relationship that has evolved in the animal and the plant kingdom as a sort of quid quo pro where both the plant and the animal benefit from their relationship. And one of the most fascinating examples I know is in a group of plants called ant plants. So these plants have evolved symbioses, these special relationships that I referred to earlier, also called mutualism. So how does this work? Well, these plants produce special hollow structures that are specifically grown for housing ants. So they produce these sort of elaborate hotels or houses, if you like, for ants. And they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. So some plants produce hollow thorns, others produce little chambers inside their stems. 
some of them even in their tubers or their leaves. Now, why would a plant produce these structures for ants to live in? Well, the clue is this. If you've ever disturbed an ant's nest, you'll know that ants will defend their colony voraciously and they will attack any threat to the ant's nest. And this really works to the plant's advantage because any would-be predator that tries to take a mouthful out of the plant will be viciously attacked by the ants. They patrol the stems of the ant's plant and attack anything that tries to eat the plant because, of course, this is their home and so they are protecting their colony. And so this is to the advantage of the plant. And the plant can also produce all sorts of other rewards for the ants that patrol its stems. So, for example, they produce sugary nectar, rather like flowers do, but they produce it in special structures on the stems. And they have food bodies, so little structures that the ants can eat. So all sorts of things that really make the ants feel at home living in the plant. How else do the ants benefit the plant? Well, for those that have hollow chambers that the ants live inside, they bring in all sorts of detritus, bits of leaf, um, sort of remains of things that they've eaten, and also their feces, the, the ants' droppings. And all of these break down and are a source of food for the plants. And many of these plants, they grow perched high up on tree branches, for example, on mossy branches in cloud forests in the tropics. And these environments are quite poor in nutrients. So there's not much in, in the way of, for example, nitrogen and phosphorus and things like that, that plants need to grow well. And so by having these ants living inside their stems, this is a, an extra source of food for the plant. So these are some fascinating examples of plants in, in the plant kingdom that have evolved relationships with animals where both the animal and the plant benefit. Thanks, Chris. That's all we have time for. For more on today's show, visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. 
and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.